When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. What is the perfect story? Does it exist? Is there a tangible formula? Has the perfect story ever been told? And if so, are we simply trying to retell this story over and over? This podcast is called The Midnight Myth, and somewhere between the black of night and the break of dawn, there is a story, and it's perfect. My name is Derek Jones. And my name is Laurel Hostack. Welcome to The Midnight Myth. Derek, I'm going to take you back like a couple weeks back in time because I want you to kind of come with me on this spiritual journey we're about to go on. Ooh, a spiritual journey. Maybe take our listeners along with us. So if you guys want to get on your spiritual thinking caps and uh, close your eyes and just imagine you're coming on a journey with us across the Atlantic and into a little city state inside of the country of Italy called the Vatican City. Cool. I just pictured a like uh, Indiana Jones plane with a line. Yeah. With if music. you just like if you get out a map, listeners, if you please get out a map. If you don't have one, print one out of the world and just take a red sharpie and like a magnet that looks like a plane and just like draw a red line and your plane going across it. And then we land in the Vatican City. Okay. Are we there? There. Okay. Great. We're in the Vatican City. Uh, as most of you guys know, if you've been listening. Uh, we just got back from our whirlwind European vacation and we have been doing a a short series of podcasts inspired by some of the things that we learned on our journey. And today we're going to talk a lot about the things that we learned in Rome. Uh, and there are so many things that we learned in Rome, but we kind of pinpointed this one moment of like true revelation that we had when we were in Rome, uh, that we wanted to really expand upon. And so like I said, we weren't technically in Rome. We were in the Vatican. Uh, And if you're not aware of this, the Vatican City is its own country. It's the smallest country in the world. It's a sort of tiny little hill inside of Rome that actually has its own government, has its own country, has its own postal service, everything you have as a country. Its own police force, its own... uh, sort of military, but they all wear silly outfits. And its own economy. Yeah. Um, But there's a bunch of really important attractions in the Vatican City uh, for tourists to see and pilgrims to see because it is, of course, the seat of the Catholic Church. It's where the Pope lives. So uh, as tourists, we, uh, we booked ourselves a guided tour 
of the Vatican Museums and St. Peter's Basilica, which is the greatest church in all of Christendom. Uh, Side note, definitely the way to do it if you want some travel advice. If you're going to go to the Vatican, book a tour that lets you skip the line and walk through the museum and walk through the basilica with someone who knows like everything about everything and uh, just let the experience just kind of like be guided through the trusted mentor there. Yeah. And I can, I can corroborate this to like a, a high degree because I've been to the Vatican before and we didn't do a tour. And now that we've done it with a tour, I can't believe, I can't imagine doing it again without it. You learn so, so much that you would have just walked right past and never really thought twice about. So it it was really awesome. And shout out to our guide. I think Lucia was her name and she was fabulous. Totally cool. Yes. Yeah, she really was. She was super, super cool and a lot of fun. Yeah. And we go in, we're not like, we're not lay people. We don't go in with no knowledge of what we're talking about because Derek here, of course, has a degree in history and has a lot of love for Roman history. Um, and I have a lot of love for, uh, you know, religious storytelling and, um, and I love, you know, ancient and classical uh, mythology as well. So, And uh, just to give you a few more creds, like, you know your shit when it comes to Renaissance art history, which is everywhere. Like, you really know what you're talking about. Um, you could, like, there were museums that we were at, Total Sidebar, Midnight Myth, Boomerang, where Laurel was my tour guide. <laughs> it's like, true. Pointing out what was more Baroque, but if it's not Baroque, don't fix don't it. Don't fix it. And what was more Renaissance. And mm-hmm. anyway, so just wanted to give you a little extra feather. Yeah, in your that cap. was in between like crying at the Louvre. I would like tell Derek a couple of things about it and then be like, and that's, that's by Giotto. And it's the first artist I ever saw in an art history class. Um, yeah, it was a good experience. Anyway, I want to take you guys through one piece of art that we saw that really set off this whole story we're about to explore tonight. Hold on, before you do. Okay. Just want to say, we're going to do a very different type of episode today because we are not going to talk about a story in the traditional Myth Night myth. We are going to talk about artwork that we experienced and what that has done or, or, or shaped or formed stories or storytelling and sometimes even um, political and theological systems. So we're going a little off the the standard, this is the story we're talking about. We're going to try to re-encapsulate like, a feeling that we had viewing a very particular piece of art and how that inspired us. So, uh, and, But art is, is a story in its own way. So I don't think it, we're off mission, yeah. but it's just a little different. We're not talking about like a, a movie or a book or a play. Well, art is a story and history is a story. And in religion, all of those things are truly one. They're kind of inextricably linked. And so if, uh, if, it's, a, if it's a good time, let's, uh, let's take our listeners into that hallway, right? Do it. So the Vatican Museums are one of the largest collections of art and antiquities in the world. Uh, they have a sculpture garden and uh, some of the most important sculptors in all of history like uh, like the Apollo, like the Laocoon, uh, and just countless statues of Roman emperors and mythological figures. And the Vatican museums are 
incredibly huge for such a small city state. It's got to be like 50% of the whole city. Like, I don't even, I don't know this true statistics, but it's, it's truly large. And you kind of wind through these hallways. It's just miles and miles of galleries that you could spend, you know, the rest of your days walking through. But at the end of it is the Sistine Chapel. And so you get through all of this kind of thinking, okay, here at the end, we're going to come out through the Sistine Chapel. And that's the goal. But before you get to the Sistine Chapel, there are a couple of couple of dimly lit hallways that have really, really massive and unexpected artworks. And the the one we're going to talk about tonight is the Hall of Tapestries. And now the tapestries at the Vatican were commissioned by a family called the Barberinis, who were a very famous family, uh, a very wealthy family in Rome. And, uh, you know, I like to think of them sort of as a, like a Roman Medici family almost. Um, you know, the Medicis in Florence had, you know, their hands in all kinds of political and artistic um, and economic pots. And the Barberinis seem to be the same. They actually produced a pope. One of the sons became a pope. Um, and so the tapestries are dedicated to, you know, that family and his rise to popedom. So uh, the tapestries generally depict, you know, scenes in his life or scenes in Christ's life, uh, which stands to reason if, you know, he's becoming the pope, he wants to equate himself with a servant of or the sort of incarnation of Jesus on earth, right? But at the last tapestry was something different. And do you want to describe what it was? Uh, sure, yeah. The last tapestry was... Um, you know, when you're walking down this hall and it's huge, by the way, these tapestries are mammoth. Um, they are like, you know, 20 foot feet tall, a piece, 20 feet wide. I'm making up those dimensions. They may not be <laughs> they're really, they're really monumental, yeah. but they're huge. And, uh, you're walking in this hall and at the very last one in a very interesting way has at face value, nothing to do with the life of Jesus or the life of this Pope. Whereas every other tapestry is telling a chapter from either the, the uh, Barberini Pope's life or a chapter from Jesus's life. The last one ironically is of Julius Caesar being stabbed to death in the Senate house of Rome, which took place historically about, you know, 30, 40 years before where most people believe Christ was born. And, um, and it, it, in a weird way, as you're walking through this, it kind of sticks out because here is this collection of tapestries through this, like, you know, three or four football field long hallway. Right. And the very last one doesn't seem to have anything to do with iconography of the previous um, iconography, if you don't know the term, is the study of icons, the study of symbols. What do they mean? So you see are surrounded with the power of Christ and the power of the, the uh, Barberini Pope being linked in this continual narrative, and then Caesar being stabbed to death. It begs the question, in this series of artwork, which are meant to be connected, why would it end with Caesar being assassinated. Right. A, uh, a question that, not to toot my own horn, when uh, they first, when the tour guide stopped and said, does anyone know what that is? 
Yeah. Guess who rose his hand and said, that's Caesar. To be fair. This dork right here. Every tour we went on, whenever somebody asked a question to the crowd, and this is like in London, this is in Paris, this is in Rome. They're like, does anybody know who that represents? Derek would be like, Caesar? <laughs> Caesar and it was, was always it was right. the answer. It was always Caesar. <laughs> Caesar is always the answer, guys. But, I mean, it begs a, a, a theme, you know, touring different cities that had a lot to do with shaping Western culture and the Western world. There are two things that became clear to me. The entire society that what we consider Western, we consider our civilization, the civilization of the West, lives under the shadow of the Caesars and Christ. Exactly. They are everywhere. And this leads me to what our our guide explained to us about this tapestry and why it belonged in that hall with the Barberini Pope and uh, the tapestries of the life of Jesus. And this kind of blew my mind. So at face value, it sounds almost obvious, but as soon as she said it, it was almost like my whole head just like opened up and like arms and legs were just sprouting out of my head and each hand had a new eyeball in it. And I just like understood all of human history in that moment. And that's when she said, so of course, you know, there would be a tapestry made of the assassination of Caesar because what happened to Caesar? He was betrayed by his friend Brutus, right? What happened to Jesus? He was betrayed by his friend Judas, and he was assassinated. And now, you know, she, she brings up great rulers in history and the, you know, the, the lineage of uh, leadership in other countries, whether for good or bad. What are the names of leaders? What were the names of the, the Roman emperors who came after Caesars? Caesar. Caesar. It's a misnomer to think that they were called emperors. That they is were, a term yeah. that we have prescribed backwards onto them. Right. They were called Caesar, or sometimes they were called Augustus, or Caesar Augustus, or there'd be an Augustus and a Caesar. And this is in the tradition of those great monolithic emperors. Uh, you know, Julius Caesar, uh, Augustus... Uh, and so on. But other, you know, other countries have adopted this, like the Tsar in Russia. Means Caesar. Caesar. Kaiser, Kaiser is Caesar. Caesar. When Napoleon um, became emperor of France, he called himself the Holy Roman Emperor. And if you walk through Napoleon's tomb, there is iconography of himself dressed as a Caesar everywhere you go. Him right. in togas, with like, you know, leaf crowns, with other people in togas paying homage to him. Yeah, his equation with with Caesar mirrors the equation with Caesar across so many Western cultures. And then this, you know, begs the question, why among the popes? Because the pope, of course, is Jesus, is an analog of Jesus on the earth. He's the earthly embodiment of Christ's will, God's will on earth. Now, how do we, you know, ascribe that power and that magnitude to one man by equating him to Jesus, to Caesar? The Pope, in other words, is Caesar. And you had a great point of this as well. When, uh, when Caesar was crowned, he was also known as Pontifex Maximus. Yeah, so when... Um, so the accumulation of powers 
that happened in the ancient world that led to the rise of the Caesars. One of them was to be the chief priest, which is the pontiff or the pontifex maximus, right? And so Caesar held this office as the chief priest because the idea of the separation of powers of church and um, political power, some really recent thing, back then there was no difference. Well, the Bishop of Rome, the, the Pope, was the first person in the ancient world to take that title away from a Roman emperor and take the title of the pontiff. So to date, the leader of religion in Rome is still the political office of the ancient Roman Empire. Right. Um, of course, you know, a pope doesn't at all, modern pope doesn't at all mirror in any real tangible way uh, a, a Roman emperor, but at the same time, that office, the name, has endured. And that name is the narrative. That name is the story that is told to the people, that is told to the followers of the Catholic faith. And that suffuses the kind of mythology around the Pope. So that's why I think it's such an interesting thing for us to talk about on the Midnight Myth, is that those stories that we grow up taking for granted end up being the things that we have to understand as the greatest, you know, uh, determining forces of our entire history, right? Yeah, so think of this. The role of the pontiff and the pontifus maximus, uh, it's most likely somewhere around, you know, like 500 BCE, where that role became a thing. Yeah. We are now at 2017 CE, so that is a, a time span of, you know, almost 2,500 years, a little over 2,500 years, my math is hazy in my head, where someone on the planet has been leading a, a religion and based upon that title also wielding tremendous power called the pontiff. And how does that happen? Well, there's a lot of different answers to that question. One was the formation of ancient Christianity into the Roman imperial state. Um, and if you think about that, that is a really interesting phenomenon because the narrative of the Christian, and especially the ancient Christian, is one of one that has been on the fringe, the persecuted, the one that is being uh, hunted, the one that is not part of the society writ large. How does a religion on the fringes of an empire at the butt of the spears at the sands of the Colosseum, literally nailed to the crosses to die somehow become part of the empire at large. Now this is the shit as a history major that fascinates me uh, beyond like all measure. And it lives today when you walk the Vatican and the Caesar who was a pagan before there was Christianity. Yeah is still present in the height of one of the most, if not the most powerful Christian church on the planet. Right. Is still such a, a interesting thing. And if that hasn't like, you know, you know, infreshed or, or invigorated your imagination, you know, consider this, consider that Roman Imperial patronage of Christianity came off of the back of one emperor 
by the name of Constantine, mm-hmm. who believed that the Christian God would allow him to reconquer the Roman Empire. And that was his motivation for not making this the official religion of Rome. No, because he didn't do that. Right. Not even really converting to the religion himself, because he didn't do that. The day he died, he he finally got baptized, because he liked to hedge his bets. He spent most of his life, you know, sacrificing to pagan gods. But because he had this vision that there is a God, a monotheistic God, that would allow him to be powerful, he brought this religion from the murky sort of depths uh, and and low points of Roman society and brought it and shined an imperial flashlight on it. And once that light hit it, it never went away and it did nothing but grow brighter and brighter and brighter. You know, this world looks really, really different without Constantine. It really does. It's it's hard to even, you know, imagine. You know, there's one thing... Um, you know, I've never been a heavily religious person, but there's something that I have always found fascinating about the power of religion to uh, to craft a narrative and to say, specifically, this thing is this other thing. And if that's a little vague, I think what I'm talking about is, uh, you know, so we hear a lot about um, early Christianity co-opting or at least assimilating pagan gods and pagan traditions in order to sort of ease the transition and create a more mainstream identity, right? So Christmas is a great example of this. Uh, Christmas is, in terms of where it falls in the calendar year, lines up with a lot of pagan celebrations and solstice rituals that were Uh, already taking place. Christmas is Sol Invictus, is the Roman holiday that it's sort of absorbed. Um, sure, but which is so many other pagan sun. celebrations taking uh, yeah, taking place around that time that all celebrate, of course, the return of the sun. Um, like Saturnalia is part of that too, that whole, you know, kind of amalgam of, uh, of, of things. But also uh, the kind of transition towards saints, the transition towards, you know, taking those old pagan gods in and saying they're not gods, they're real, but they're demons, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, But then this evolution of being able to say, you know, this wafer is Christ's body. This wine is Christ's blood. This pope is Jesus. This pope is Caesar. This church is heaven. I think it's a really fascinating way to craft a story. The kind of power of the, you know, ultimate metaphor and the blurring of the lines between metaphor and literal, right? Um. I kind of disagree. So, like, well, I don't think to a Catholic person the taking of the Eucharist is a metaphor, right? Like, right, exactly. You know, like, I don't think they think I'm like, especially a like devout uh, fundamentalist or a strict Catholic. I'm sure there's plenty of Catholics that do think the taking of the Eucharist is a metaphor, but by pure canon and pure law of of the Catholic Church. It's not a metaphor. You are literally imbibing in the body of Christ. Like the a priest has the power to take bread and turn it into the, the power of Christ. Right? This, this, I think, is exactly what I'm saying, and I may not have phrased it in the best way, but the ability to take that thing that we should all take for granted as, an, as a metaphor in our regular lives, if we 
didn't have the context necessarily or we didn't have the scriptural precedent, we'd be like, oh, no, that's a cracker. I get it. I'm metaphorically taking the, uh, the body of Christ. But the power of religion to shape that narrative and to create the, um, you know, the idea that you are literally imbibing the body of Christ, I think it is a fascinating power. And I, I think, agree. Yeah, and I think that's a huge part, you know, the ability to, um, to tell that story and to make that story so mainstream is a huge part of why it's so influential in our, our history. And uh, I think another question I want to ask and try to answer tonight is, you know, what does this mean for us today? Because it's all well and good to say, oh, yes, Caesar and Jesus and Rome and the popes are really important to our history, so let's think about them a little more often. I think that's fine. But I think I also want to examine, you know, how do we take this and apply it to who we are and where we are right now? And I think... A, a, a piece of art that does that is a piece of art that you just took in pretty recently, and that's Julius Caesar by William Shakespeare. Mm-hmm. I think that play is, it may not be modern anymore, but I think that that play does a lot to try and answer that question and try to... What, 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 what question? Of like, what does, does this all matter? mean to me? Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah, I, you know, I, I recently read Julius Caesar, the Shakespeare play for the first time, which I felt like was kind of a shame as much as I love Roman history and as much as I will admit Shakespeare is brilliant that I had never actually read it. So yeah. I, you know, put off a few hours of my last day off of work and sat there and uh, and I read it. And then I found on YouTube that there was a movie made in 1970 with Charleston Heston playing Mark Anthony. So then I watched the YouTube uh, that on that, you know, Julius Caesar, which you can see too, listeners. If you just go to YouTube and put Julius Caesar, you know, Charlton Heston, you'll find it. And the whole movie's out there and you can watch it. And uh, I'll leave it to you, whether it's a good movie or not, but (laughs) it does make Shakespeare. I don't like reading Shakespeare. It's much better to listen to Shakespeare. I will say that even if it's not a production that I found a lot of value in. Right. Um, I found that Julius Caesar, the Shakespeare play, uh, ironically, and I didn't realize this, Shakespeare's not a main character in it at or all. Caesar's not a main character, yeah. I'm sorry, yeah. Caesar's not a main character in it at all. It's really about He speaks, Brutus. I think, like 130 lines in the whole play. Yeah, but it's called Julius Caesar, and it's really about the spirit of Caesar and the spirit of Caesar enduring and the decision of a friend to betray a friend, that being Brutus. And I imagine that if we take the biblical metaphor and Brutus being Judas, if Shakespeare were to write a play about Judas, it might feel somewhat similar with this one caveat and difference. Um, Brutus is purely a political actor, And we know Judas, vis-a-vis the Gospels, is purely a spiritual actor. And the reality is, is in both of those men's lives, those lines weren't so clear. Right. They were blurred. You know, so if Caesar was the head priest and Brutus is to murder him, he is murdering a head priest. 
as well as someone he viewed as a tyrant. Yeah. That's not a theme that even exists in the Shakespeare rendition that I would imagine if you're going to uh, be an ancient Roman and want to kill someone who claims to be a descendant of Venus, which uh, Caesar did, and is the head priest, that calculus has to be there unless one is totally cynical about religion, which Romans weren't known for that. Greeks were. Ancient Greeks were, but Romans were not known for being cynical about religion. They were known to being superstitious and being involved and believing in it. And conversely, we look at Judas through the the eyes of the gospel as purely a religious actor who commits deicide. And in reality, you know, Jesus was also acting in politics. You know, his decision to upend the altars in the temple of Jerusalem, his decision to overturn the order of the, and the rule of the Pharisees was a political calculation. He was calling himself a King. In other words, when he rode in to Jerusalem on a donkey, right. um, Something that popes still do. So Judas's decision to kill Jesus could not be purely just out of religious motives. It had to have a political calculation in it. Both actions result in both men dying, but in Shakespeare Caesar, Mark Anthony finds his body and says, never was there a more noble man than, than Brutus, because everyone that wanted to kill Caesar wanted to kill Caesar for themselves. Brutus was the only one that thought that this would be good for the Republic for and hated himself for doing it. Yeah, We get no such redemption in Judas, in the Gospels, at least that I know of, um, and I'm not a scholar on the Gospels, so please correct me. So well, I, we, we get the redemption of Judas in Jesus Christ Superstar, which is, I think, canon. I don't know. I've never seen it. <laughs> Maybe it is. <laughs> it's so, in the Bible. So, you know, I, I wonder, um, in relearning Jesus, and I, I don't say this to offend any Christians, but thinking about him and his political choices and dealing with the political fallout because his death was a political death. Yeah. You know, the, the, the Romans and the Pharisees that killed him, they didn't kill him because they thought he was a God. They killed him because he was fucking up the order because he was being way too punk rock. Right. You know, and like, and that's why he, he got nailed to a cross. And so I, I wonder what the redemption story of Judas is because uh, Shakespeare's writing at a point where um, he's a little suspicious of the monarchy because Queen Elizabeth at that time is cracking down on playwrights saying you can write this and can't write that. And he's like, he's a little suspicious. So he finds a way to write something a little critical of the monarchy. Uh, Brutus up until that point uh, was never really at least known in any written format that survived today in any historical or a way that's heroic is usually, you know, kind of decried as a failure for most parts, because a, he actually failed in all of his goals and B the histories were written under the rule of the Caesars. So obviously the guy that architected, Oh God, I just said a terrible word. Oh no. The guy that orchestrated was which one I meant to say the assassination of Caesar is a villain. And here comes Shakespeare to be like, yeah, maybe not. Maybe there's a nobility yeah. to, to to Brutus. And Brutus, 
Brutus really takes on sort of microcosmically in his mind and in his internal struggle and in his conflict, the uh, sort of the conflicts and the uh, uncertainties of the populace, you know, coming out of a, a time of economic and political turmoil and seeing uh, suddenly a man rise to power when, you know, everybody thought maybe we're actually going to have that republic that we all wanted so much. Uh, and so everything is relying on this sort of fickle, um, you know, faith and loyalty of the plebeians. And there's still that internal struggle that's, you know, this tempest in Brutus's mind. Yeah. And I think what Brutus didn't realize was that his republic that he so loved was already dead. It was already dead. And I wonder if Judas realized that the uh, Jewish Roman uh, noble elite in in the province of Judea that he maybe so loved was already dead. I don't know. Maybe. Um, but interesting about Julius Caesar, the, the play too, if I may. Um, there is a sort of resurrection theme with Caesar because Caesar gets killed. Then his spirit yeah, comes and sees. He gets a ghost. Um, comes and sees uh, Brutus, um, giving him a resurrection arc. And I would also argue that through Octavius Caesar, we get to see the spirit of Caesar also be resurrected in his nephew, taking up and leading the Caesarian party. Um, however, um, as history would have it, and as Caesar, uh, Shakespeare writes in the play, uh, Caesar, who was, from what mo most people believe, in particular Brutus, that was a good dude, um, when Octavian rose to power, he and Mark Anthony drew up a very long list of everyone that ever disagreed with them that had money and they killed them all and took their money. Yeah. And it's not cool. They called it the proscriptions. Yeah. <clears throat> Though they in, in pure historical accuracy did not invent this practice of powerful men killing rich men that didn't have the means to defend themselves militarily and taking their wealth. That was not something they invented. No, Daenerys invented that, right? Uh, no, 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 no. no. His name was Sulla. Okay. Yeah. Oh, that's Game of Thrones I'm thinking of, not real history. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's easy to confuse them. Um, but uh, has Daenerys ever killed any rich men and taken all of their wealth? I don't think so. Uh, well, I mean, I don't know if he was that rich, but she did burn up that guy who had all the Unsullied and took all the Unsullied. That's true, but I would say that she freed the Unsullied. She they sure followed did. her willingly. But that would be, we digress. Um, we digress. Um, Sulla. That's what you were saying. You were talking about Sulla. Yes, he invented the prescriptions. Yeah, I think I had. I think that's all I had to say about that. Yeah. See, this um, is what happens when you mentioned Game of Thrones. I completely we just go totally off the rails. Yeah, I completely forget everything that we were talking about and just want to talk Game of Thrones. I just want to hit really John quickly. Snow's a Targaryen. I have another point to make, but I want to quickly hit the um, redemption arc you're talking about in the play because um, you know we see, of course. The, the ghost scene, and then we see Octavian kind of rising up and taking on the name of Caesar and being this redemption or this uh, resurrection arc for uh, Julius Caesar within the play. But then, like we said at the beginning of this episode, we see that true resurrection arc in history as well because that name lives on and is as, if not more influential in Western history as the name of Jesus Christ, right? I would totally agree. So, no, I would certainly give the name Jesus Christ the nod there in terms of importance. Well, yeah, in the longer sure. scheme, but 
But, you know, the Caesar had a thousand years to be the most important name in history. Sure. But talking about the influence, you know, walking through, you know, the cities uh, all over Europe, you see how many bridges were built in the name of trying to look more like Caesar, how many wars were fought in the name of trying to look more like Caesar. The very nature of power itself had to be derived somehow to the power of Rome. And this is true in both the theological sense with the emergence of the Catholic Church, which then placed the kings or the crowns on the medieval kings and queens. Uh, this is true in terms of the formation of the Holy Roman Empire, which was started vis-a-vis Charlemagne. Um, so this is a, a consistent point. This, so like, do yourselves a favor. Walk around Washington, D.C. Take a look at the way shit's built. Ask yourself, why is it built this way? To be Roman. To be Roman in its, its, its symbol. To be Roman in its iconography. You know, I, we live under the shadow of Rome, whether we want to admit it or not. And the, the challenges and the problems and the things that the Romans were dealing with echo through our history now. Yeah, and I just wanted to say, um, you've probably seen that the play Julius Caesar has been making headlines again in the last year. Um, the public theater put on a production of Julius Caesar for Shakespeare in the Park, which is the free theater in Central Park that they do in New York. Um, and it's directed by Oscar Eustace, and it received a lot of comments and a lot of anger and a lot of uproar because it depicted in the role of Caesar a somewhat Trumpian figure. And it it was we, pretty Let's not say overt. somewhat. It yeah, was Trump. It was, it was overt. It was Trump. You can't mistake that haircut. Yeah, it was the haircut. It was the, the you know suit. the Slavic wife. It was the suit. It was the, the you know, tie charismatic was like politician hanging right over his balls the way Trump ties his ties. Yeah, it was clear. It was a clear nod, and uh, you know the outlets on the right came up very outraged, saying they're depicting the assassination of Trump. They're advocating political violence, um, and absolutely, that is like a that is a conclusion that you could draw from that production. And there are some like taste things that that come into question when you're like looking at that production. But when you look a little closer, I think it's important and this, you know, gets at how I I'm answering this question of what is this what does Caesar mean to me? What does this narrative mean to me today? And I think a lot of that comes alive in productions that we see of Julius Caesar. Um, but to to condemn that production for depicting an actual uh, political leader would be to ignore the like centuries-long history of productions of that play, which have always shown, always shown overt representations of political leaders. Four years ago, there was a production that depicted an Obama-like figure in the role and depicted his assassination. Uh, you know, there was a Hillary. There was a. Uh, there was a like Kennedy-esque, like amalgam of, uh, you know, both Democratic and Republican presidents in the past, directed by the same guy as this guy. Uh, Uh, Not to mention that it's even older than our modern, like most contemporary history, that that the, the depictions of Julius Caesar throughout every reproduction after it left the Globe Theater in the 1500s has been showing different political leaders. There was a depiction of Caesar as Hitler in the forties as Mussolini. 
yeah. Uh, yeah, it's it's run the gamut. And when this play was first produced at the Globe in 1599, it was premiering to a very politically charged and like civil unrest, uh, you know, populace. Because at this point, Queen Elizabeth I had been queen for decades, and she still had no heir. Nobody knew what was coming next. Nobody knew what was there for the future of the empire. She was massively consolidating her power. And Shakespeare, because of censorship laws, wasn't able to outright speak up against or or raise a conversation about this. And so he had to equivocate in creating this play about, or ostensibly about, Julius Caesar. And the fact that we can continue to take that legacy of Caesar and what he represents and what Brutus represents, which is all of our failed revolutions, all of our questions about our government, all of our worries about our government and the people who lead us to take those two figures and continue to, you know, redress them as people that we can recognize just as a testament to not only that play or Shakespeare, but the figure himself. Uh, and I, I do just want to call out the, um, the director Oscar Eustace's comments on the, um, sort of outrage against his depiction of Trump. Um, because he claimed, of course, that this does not advocate in any way political violence. And the play doesn't advocate political violence. It laments political violence. It condemns political violence. Because in the end, it's about failed rebellion, failed revolution, and the failure to return to a republic that people really, truly wanted. Because maybe they were you know, drawn in by the charisma of one leader, or maybe they were comfortable with the generosity of that leader, or maybe they just didn't know how to plan it or couldn't recognize the signs that things were failing and didn't know how to truly get it back. Here's the other thing. I'm going to add on that. I'm actually mad at this director for a whole other reason. Hmm. How dare you compare Trump to Caesar? How (laughs) dare you? How dare you make uh, one of the most prolific, albeit controversial, but certainly most impactful individuals in the history of humanity and allow that to be the spray-tanned, bleach-haired moron of a president that we have? And, And Caesar was a genius, whether you like what he did with his power or whether you didn't, the man changed the world because he was a, and everything he did, he excelled. And um, we can, from a contemporary perspective, debate whether those things were moral or not. And these are all good debates, but calling Caesar and Trump, linking them symbolically, if it were me and I were the president, and people were walking around calling themselves Julius Caesar, but looking like me, I'd be like, oh, I came up strong. They're, they're comparing me to Caesar. That being said, the mindset of some to look at that as an assault on themselves, as an assault on their political ideology, I would say before you jump to the point where you need to defend an attack that's not there, go see the play. Yeah, or even just read it. Yeah, no, seriously, go see the play. Not to boo and hiss. Go and be an audience member and then see the play and then walk away and judge for yourself 
if that is demeaning and demoralizing you because of the artistic interpretation of how they made Caesar look more like Trump. Because the truth of it is, Caesar wins. His spirit endures death. His nephew goes on to become the first emperor of Rome and rules unchallenged for 30 fucking years. And if you're offended that Trump looks like Caesar, that Brutus kills him, pick up a book and read about it first. Before you get on your phone and you tweet about how indignant this is and you know, take a moment and be like, what is this play even about? Maybe I should see it or at the very least read what it's about before I jump to the conclusion that there's some gigantic conspiracy to tear down your president because that is just flat out not fucking happening. Word. Drop the mic. Game. Should we play a game? Yeah, let's play a game. All right, we're going to play a game, guys. Uh, If you're just joining us here on the Midnight Myth podcast, then I'd love to share with you that Every week here on the podcast, we do love to play a game to sort of lighten the mood or lift your spirits, have some fun with the characters and situations we've been playing with. Oh, also, different type of episode, guys. Let us know what you think. Yeah, let us know what you think. We'd do you like it? Hear. You don't like it? Give us feedback. Awesome. Um, so we would love for you to play along with our game at home. So please tweet us if you have a response at The Midnight Myth on Twitter or search for us on Facebook, Midnight Myth Podcast, or drop us a line on the website, www.midnightmyth.com. Now, this week's game is... Why don't you take it away, Derek? Uh, Quite simply this. You have to pick a historical leader to win a battle. There are some caveats that to that, rather. Caveat one, the historical leader must have held some sort of an official office. Caveat number two... The battle is a rap battle. It's a rap battle. So you have to pick your historical leader who will win a battle of rapping. All right. Do you want to go first? Yeah. So I chose, in the spirit of what we've been talking about tonight, a religious leader. Uh, And this religious leader is known as the Dalai Lama. And the Dalai Lama holds a political office. Yeah, well, he's in exile right, right now, so he doesn't hold too much. But yes, too but much officially. political power. Oh, but oh, my the one I chose is not alive. Is that okay? Yeah, that's fine. Okay, but it's cool. a historical leader. I just chose somebody who is still alive. Cool. And now I'm talking about the current Dalai Lama, but the Dalai Lama, of course, are a uh, a line of um, of figures who are the incarnation of the Buddha and uh, religious and political leaders of the country of Tibet. The current Dalai Lama is currently in exile. He's unable to return to Tibet, which just brings a single tear to my eye every time I hear about it um, because of the Chinese government. Um, But he is a a Buddhist leader who is also a Nobel Peace Laureate who travels all over the world and, you know, just teaches love and understanding and Buddhist principles and talks about all kinds of progressive ideas um, and just a wonderfully lovely person. I got a chance to see him speak in Colorado once, and I was like, in this, like I was like really close to him. I like shook his hand right before the speech, so I was just like freaking out. I was like, I'm talking to the Buddha, like the incarnation of the Buddha. Um, but regardless of what you believe about reincarnation or religion, he's just a super amazing, progressive, loving, caring dude, and he speaks a lot of different languages. And he knows a lot of different words. And I feel like his 
rap battle. I was like, finally we get to why he's good at the rap battle. I just wanted to share a little bit of love for the Dalai Lama first. But his life experiences, so great rappers often come from life experiences that put them through some kind of struggle or adversity. So that gives them this emotional depth that gets down to, you know, it's going to connect with you. When somebody gets up in front of you and freestyles, it's not good if it's just going to be like, you know, talking about the things that they see or just like rapping about like the first thing that comes into their mind. They got to be drawing from something deep within. And I think the Dalai Lama, based on his years of exile from his home country, the struggles with the Chinese government and meeting so many different people all over the world and facing a lot of, you know, religious oppression would make for really interesting uh, rap lyrics as well as his incorporation of Buddhist and, um, you know, Tibetan and um, just all over the world languages and mythologies. I think it would be freaking awesome and it would blow your mind. Boom. Cheerio, mate. I hope you want to sit there. Listen to me. I'm British. I killed Hitler. My name doesn't no. want to stand still because my rap battle leaders Churchill. Churchill. You think you'll beat me with a blitzkrieg bomb? But my words, they don't know none. No, I'm just kidding. I can't rap. I was like, you're not really doing this, are you? I can't really that rap. That was really quite good, though. Yeah, yeah, you know. I wasn't <laughs> listening to a thing you were saying. I'm like, how am I going to rap as Churchill the entire time? Yeah, you looked pretty intense over there. Yeah, I wasn't listening to a word you said because I'm like, I got to try to come at you with a rap Whoa. of Churchill. I'm going to pick Churchill. I'm going to pick Churchill because you know what? Dude's gangster. Yeah. Way with words. Doesn't give a fuck. And, um, you know, helped win the war for the British and likes to smoke cigars and drink whiskey. And that's why I pick him. I don't know if he beats the Dalai Lama or not, but I'll tell you what, he's going to do his very best. (laughs) And he'll do it with dignity and passion. And politeness. And politeness. And probably there'll be a whole bunch of people that you don't realize he's oppressing behind the scenes that he's oppressing by doing it. Yeah. Because that's just Churchill. That's how he rolls. Just like secretly marginalizing everybody in Kenya. And India. But he defeated the fucking Nazis and he is Churchill, so. Yep. That's all I got. Yeah, your, your, I would your love argument to hear, is much bigger than mine. But yours is good. I would yeah. love to hear everybody's opinion. Who do you think would win in an epic Jerry rap battle no, between mate. Winston Churchill and the Dalai Lama? And uh, pick, pick your own. Who do you think could take yeah, down the winner? Yeah, and tweet us or Facebook us, whatever you want. Um, uh, oh, oh also, one thing, one thing, listeners, review us on iTunes. I was now. just going to say that. Yeah, uh, if if you're enjoying the show, please go over to Apple Podcast and drop us a five star rating if you so choose. And if you would like to share a couple of words, please uh, you know leave us a review. It really helps us get out there, and we would love to hear what you think and if you're enjoying the show. No, please put down the your earpods or whatever you listen to us on and review us now. And share with your friends. Till next time, be kind. Be kind. Be kind.